life and journey of faith, if you would take your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. We want to see how all of this ends for Jacob. Now, Jacob is not done in the book of Genesis. He will appear time and again, but the focus of the Genesis account will now shift to his sons, his 12 sons, in particular his son Joseph. And Jacob sort of takes a back, back seat to the, the plot line, if you will. He'll, there'll be a few other stories where he's involved, but it's usually from the perspective of his sons, the, the 12 sons who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is kind of the climax or the end of the Jacob narrative, the Jacob part of the story in the book of Genesis. Jacob's name, I will remind you, means supplanter or deceiver, heel grabber. And you will remember that when he and his twin brother Esau were born, Esau actually emerged first and Jacob came out following him, grabbing his heel after they had spent the nine months in the womb fighting each other, wrestling each other for supremacy. But even before they were born, God had told Rebekah and Isaac that there are two sons, two nations in your womb, Rebekah, and the younger will take precedence over the older. He will be the ruler. He will be the inheritor of the promises that I gave to Abraham and then to Isaac. This story then is one marked by strife and conflict. It began in the womb. It would carry on to be a conflict with his brother Esau, with his father Isaac, with his uncle Laban, and between his wives, two sisters, Leah and Rachel. And the story is one of how God continues to fulfill his covenant promises, to show himself faithful It's a story of how he transforms Jacob into a man of faith, a faithful covenant partner. So we've seen how God's presence transforms Jacob's life. We've seen how God's discipline in Jacob's exile refines him. And we've seen how God's unfailing deliverance comes to Jacob. And in Genesis 32, we see this faith journey come full circle. When Jacob had fled from the land of promise, he fled with nothing but the promise, nothing but the blessing. No money, no wife, no descendants, no status, no protection. While in exile, Jacob has become prosperous. He has an extensive family now. He has extensive holdings Much prosperity. After 20 years, Jacob is now returning to the land and he is ready to re-enter the promised land. And you remember that God had promised to do this very thing. As Jacob exited the land, God appeared to him. He saw the stairway going up into heaven with the angels ascending and descending and God appeared to him and God said, I promise you. And he, he restated the promise all the promises to Abraham, and he said, I will go with you, and wherever you go, I will be with you, and I will bring you back to this land. So God has promised this, and now after 20 years, Jacob is returning. And yet something looms 
over Jacob. There remains unresolved one crucial matter from his troubled past, and that is his brother Esau. His brother Esau's anger and vows of vengeance for Jacob's treachery is the main reason Jacob left the land in the first place. And now after 20 years, he's going back, and he knows he will have to meet Esau. So in Genesis chapters 32 and 33, we find this story of Jacob's reconciliation with Esau. But as you're going to see, the actual reconciliation is kind of anticlimactic. Because it is not Esau who opposes Jacob as he re-enters the land, but the Lord himself. And so the climax of this story and all of these stories is not Jacob's encounter with Esau, but it is Jacob's encounter with the God of Abraham and Isaac. And as God's presence has transformed Jacob, as his discipline has refined Jacob, As his deliverance has given Jacob new hope and new vitality, so now God's grace prevails in Jacob's life. The focal point of all of these scenes is the changing of Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel, Israel, which means one who has striven with God and prevailed. As Jacob prevails with men and he prevails with God, it is God's grace that prevails in Jacob's life. So what does it look like when God's grace prevails in our lives? How does God move into our lives and by his grace bring us to know him, bring us to walk with him, to be faithful covenant people? When we talk about God's grace, we're talking about God's undeserved blessing freely given. It is God's sovereign work in our lives for our good and for his glory. Maybe the best definition is this, that God's grace is the going forth of divine love as blessings to sinners who deserve nothing. It's God's grace. It's his initiative It isn't that we come and we ask for grace. It is not that we come and we bargain for grace. It is not that we come and that we have earned grace or make some claim on God's grace. God's grace is God's sovereign initiative to work good in our lives for his own glory's sake. That is why in Ephesians chapter one, the apostle Paul will say this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is grace, that God would choose us Without our, in our rebellion and in our sin and with no knowledge of him, that he would choose us. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is why in the next chapter he will say, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. This is what we see played out in Jacob's life. It is God's grace and Jacob will realize it. Jacob knows it. It is part of the transformation. We will see today how Jacob has come to grips with the fact that he doesn't deserve any of this that he is totally dependent on God. So how can we know, or how, how does God's grace prevail in our lives? And it's not exhaustive, but let me suggest just a few ways that God's grace prevails in our lives. So if you found your way to Genesis chapter 32, I want you to look back up in chapter 31 at the end. And I want you to see in verse 55 that we get the feeling that Uncle Laban is in a hurry to make an exit. Now, he and Jacob have just confronted one another. He has tried to prevent Jacob from leaving the land, but because of God's warning, Laban has said, that's it, let's make peace, we'll build this monument, you won't come over against me, I will not cross this line or boundary and come over against you, because he fears Jacob. And in verse 55 of chapter 31, It says, early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. No kisses or blessing for Jacob. Then Laban departed and returned home. So it's early in the morning. He's making making his way out of there. There's no kiss for Jacob like there had been for Jacob when Jacob had arrived. And he, he plotted to use Jacob and squeeze him. So Jacob, having turned his back to Laban in 20 years of hardship, 20 years of hard labor and deceit, being deceived, Jacob continues westward to the borders of the promised land and out of the pan and into the fire. How God's grace prevails in our lives, first of all, we see that God's grace compels us to seek him. God's grace compels us to seek him. Look at chapter 32, verse one. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Okay, let's stop right here. So as Jacob re-enters the land, he arrives at the border, he once again witnesses the presence of God's angels. This experience mirrors Jacob's earlier experience as he left the land. When he saw the angels ascending and descending a stairway into heaven. And this vision this, that Jacob has, this perception of our spiritual reality that is normally hidden, this view of these, this camp of angels testifies that God's focus his program is, on the, is in this land. This 
This land that he has promised to Abraham and his people in which he's going to build a nation has his special attention. This land is the place where God's presence resides. This is where God can be known. It is Abraham's heirs who have a special relationship with the land. And so Jacob, as he now arrives at the border of this land, now sees the camp of angels. However, unlike before, Jacob this time sees a military force. This is God's camp. The word camp is referring to an army encampment. So this is God's army. It is at the ready And what are they doing here? They are guarding. They are patrolling the borders of the land. And most likely they are present to oversee Jacob's encounter with Esau. You think there is a spiritual realm, spiritual warfare that is going on all around us of which we have no perception? You better believe it. Jacob now sees that. He may not understand all of the implications, but he sees the army of the living God a host of angelic armies encamped at the border of the land. And he memorializes this experience by naming the place, Mahanaim, which means two camps. His camp, his people, his family and all of his holdings, and then God's camp. God's army is there. Look at verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you will say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So Jacob sends messengers ahead. He doesn't just enter the land with no uh, announcement of of himself or his intentions. He reveals himself to Esau. He initiates contacting Esau. He is also testing the waters. He wants Esau to know this is not an invasion. He is not setting himself against Esau. But he comes with his family and all of his holdings. He is returning home. And what he gets, he concludes, is bad news. Esau is not waiting to greet him. Esau is coming out to him. And he has with him 400 men. This is a militia force. Esau has assembled 400 soldiers or militia to come with him. So Jacob enacts a strategy. And it is to divide his family and all of his possessions into two camps. This is not a lack of faith. It is a lack of presumption. We're going to see that in Jacob's prayer in a minute. This is a lack of presumption. He's afraid that Esau is coming to attack him. 
And he doesn't know that just because God has promised blessing that Esau will respond in a right way or that Esau's good response will be part of that blessing. And so Jacob looks and he says, well, if, if I divide my camps, Esau will have to focus on one and at least half of us can escape. Worst case scenario. So Jacob, in a sense, is saying that the promise must continue and from his street level view of circumstances, he strategizes in such a way that even if Esau destroys half of him, that half of him goes on into the land and continues. Verse nine, having made his plans, having divided his, his camp, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be uh, numbered for multitude. Who is this? Who is this praying? Could this be Jacob? Could this be the schemer? Could this be the deceiver? Something changed in Jacob's life. God has been at work. That's what we've been looking at over these weeks. Jacob now trades all of his scheming, all of his ploys, all of his plots for prayer. He turns to God. Instead of resorting to some ploy or manipulation, and by the way, this is the longest recorded prayer in the book of Genesis. Instead of turning to those things, he prays. And in praying, Jacob points to his obedience. You told me, return to the land. It's time to go. I've come back because you came to me and you told me it's time to go back, Jacob. He points to his obedience. He proclaims his own unworthiness and he recognizes God's grace. I came across this Jordan 20 years ago with nothing but a stick in my hand. I had nothing but a staff. And now I have two camps. I have two armies of people with me, so to speak. All of this has come from you, and I haven't deserved the least of the deeds of your faithfulness. I haven't deserved any of it. That's grace. He states his fears. I fear my brother. He pleads for deliverance. Deliver me out of his hand. And he casts himself on God's mercy and promises. And he knows that God will be faithful regardless of the outcome. That is why he repeats the promises here at the end of his prayer. You have promised to make a great people. 
You have to make good on it. I can't ensure that my descendants will continue. From my perspective, Esau could wipe us all out. But you've made this promise and I'm appealing to it. This is a new humility in Jacob's life. You see, true humility, true spiritual sensitivity will produce earnest prayer and faith. Even in the face of impossible circumstances from the street level perspective, from our viewpoint. Prayerlessness, you could look at it a different way, Prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. Do you struggle to pray? Do you feel guilty when we talk about prayer? I understand that. I feel that way often. Want to know why we don't pray more? The answer is very simple. We are not desperate enough. We're not desperate enough. Especially where we live having everything that we need especially when compared to the world as a whole. We are extremely wealthy, even those among us with the least amount of income or holdings or whatever you want to, however you want to measure it, even those among us with the least in our culture are fabulously wealthy compared to the great majority of the world. We have everything. We're not desperate And we assume even in the simple things in life that we can act independently of God. How much we pray is a measure of pride in our lives because really God is the benefactor, capital B, and you and I are always the beneficiaries. God does not benefit from us. We always benefit from him. And so Jacob demonstrates the right way to respond to fear. It is to turn to the God of the promise. And it is to bank everything on his word, his promises. Dependent prayer. And God is pleased when we seek him. And if we are tempted to think, oh, I don't want to bother God with this, that is not humility, that is pride. And that is wrong thinking about who God is. As though God is some way taxed or overburdened with our requests and our needs. God is pleased when we seek him. And you know what? By his grace, he will compel us to seek him. How does he do that? By bringing us to the end of ourselves. That's what he does. He brings us to the end of self. And it is at the end of self that you begin to find God and to seek God. So his grace is prevailing in your life over all of your devices, over all of your solutions, over all of your schemes, over all of the answers that you and I think we can provide. God's grace is prevailing. He is bringing us to an end of ourselves where we end up at his feet like Jacob, saying, I'm not worthy of anything. But you have promised, and I fear this, and I need you. And will you not deliver me out of my enemy's hand? His grace is prevailing. 
The question is, where do you and I need to submit to God? Through what circumstances is the Lord compelling you to seek him? Where is it that the Lord is pressing you and putting you in a difficult place, even a scary place like Jacob is, and forcing you to depend on his grace instead of your own solutions, your own devices, your own answers? God's grace compels us to seek him. Secondly, God's grace works genuine uh, genuine humility in us. God's grace works in us a genuine humility. Look at Genesis 32, verse 13. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats and 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third, and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. So Jacob's approach is this, and that is to take all of these huge droves of of livestock, possessions, wealth, holdings, And piece by piece, send them out in front of him as gifts. So as Esau is coming down the road, he meets this first gift. And and the messenger says, we're with Jacob. Jacob's coming behind us. These are yours from him. This will be repeated over and over as Esau approaches. See, Jacob has humbled himself before God. But this next step is to humble himself before others. And the first expression of humility is seen in these gifts that he sends. They signify really a confession. I have wronged you. I have wronged you. I have wronged you. I have wronged you. Over and over. And so he humbles himself. We also see a second expression of humility in how he addresses Esau. Your servant Jacob, he refers to himself, through his servants. Your servant Jacob sends these. Your servant Jacob is behind us. And he addresses Esau as what? My Lord Esau. He's not enslaving himself to Esau by calling him Lord. He's simply showing respect. He's showing honor. My Lord Esau, your servant Jacob. So he humbles himself. He recognizes Esau's authority. Now who's the superior party? Jacob is. Jacob is the superior party according to God's choice. 
Jacob is the superior party according to God's blessing, but from Jacob's perspective, it is not something to be grasped or exploited over and against his brother Esau, whom he has wronged in the past. It's not something to be taken advantage of. He approaches with humility, not a lack of faith, but genuine humility. Now, some think that Jacob is acting in fear as opposed to faith, that if Jacob had faith, he would just kind of march in and meet Esau and leave the rest to God. But that is not the wisdom that grace has worked in Jacob's life. And when you see these actions, these giving of these gifts, and this address to Esau, and it comes so closely after this prayer of declared trust in God and praise to God, We have to see these things as connected. This approach to Esau flows from his prayer of faith. Just as he has been humbled before God, he must be humbled before Esau. So we see that Jacob's plotting and his scheming, he has traded away for prayer, dependence on God. And now we see that Jacob trades all of his cunning and all of his ambition which have now been made holy by God's discipline, he trades them off for wisdom. Even this method of approaching, this repetition of the gifts, wave after wave after wave, shows Jacob's wisdom in approaching Esau. Now look again at verse 20. I want you to see a key thought in this story. The phrase appease him. Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, that is, Jacob is thinking, I may appease him. This phrase, appease him, is literally appease his face. The phrase, accept me, at the end of verse 20, perhaps he will accept me, is really, perhaps he will lift up my face. So if you read verse 20... Again, you will, see, you will say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease his face with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face, perhaps he will lift my face. Face, face, face. Someone's face is their countenance, which expresses their disposition someone's face demonstrates their anger or their pleasure or their acceptance or their rejection I can look at my child's face or my wife's face at times and I can tell what her response is to what I've said without having to ask her or wait for her to say anything and if I'm smart I will correct what I've just said to her before she says anything or needs to say anything. We all experience that. Without even thinking about it, we respond to people's faces. When they go, we know they didn't understand us. When they raise their eyebrows, we know we've surprised them. Jacob is saying, I may appease his face. By these means, maybe I can change his countenance. Maybe I can change Esau's disposition toward me. I will see his face means that Jacob wants to see his face and not his sword. 
It means he wants a peaceable greeting, a face-to-face meeting, not a battle. And when he says at the end, perhaps he will lift my face, he means acceptance. Maybe Esau will accept my humility. Perhaps he will accept my approach with my face down. And, And the picture here is that when approaching in humility, one's head would be bowed and would wait for the person being approached to lift the head, to accept them, and to behold their face, face to face. That's what Jacob wants. Jacob wants a face-to-face encounter with Esau. And grace has worked genuine humility in Jacob. This is a different man, isn't it? And so as he approaches Esau, he approaches with humility. But grace goes further. It goes even further because, thirdly, God's grace severs us from self-sufficiency. Look at verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. So he is now crossing the Jordan River. So he sent these gifts ahead. Esau is still approaching, but night has come, which means they're not going to travel anymore. So at twilight, having sent these gifts ahead, Jacob goes ahead and he moves across the Jordan River. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is one of the most mysterious encounters in all of the Bible. And first note that it is intensely personal. Jacob is all alone. Everything else, everyone else has already been sent on ahead. The gifts, all of his possessions, all of the family, no one else is around. And it's also important to note that Jacob is the one who is attacked. And a man wrestled with him implies that this man initiated the wrestling match, not Jacob. Jacob... Lying down, perhaps asleep, awakes to a man pinning him to the ground. Or, if Jacob was standing, he is suddenly grabbed from behind. Whoever this man is, it is he who has confronted Jacob by initiating the bout. 
Whereas Jacob has been concerned about Esau attacking him, he suddenly finds himself confronted with a personal opponent. Who is this man? It is the Lord himself. Now some say that this is an angel. It's possible, but this is the Lord who confronts Jacob. So far, Jacob has witnessed angels who have always appeared to him as angels and interacted with him as angels. And up to this point, no angel has ever spoken to Jacob. Even though they've been around him, he's been in their presence, he has viewed them, they haven't spoken to him. Only God himself has spoken to Jacob. Says something about how important Jacob is in the program, in the plan of the promise. Most important is Jacob's conclusion in verse 30. I have seen God face to face and my life has been delivered. Jacob at first recognizes that this person is a divine messenger at least. That's why he asked for a blessing. But his conclusion is that it is God himself. So a couple of questions have to be answered then. First of all, how can the Lord not prevail over Jacob in a wrestling match? If this is God, how does Jacob exert enough strength to overpower God? And we know Jacob is a strong person. We've known his hard labor. We've seen him move huge stones to open up the well so that he could water Rachel's sheep. So we know Jacob is a strong man. But really to overpower God in a wrestling match? Secondly, why? Why does God do this? Well, the answer to the first question is simply that God accommodates himself to Jacob's level of strength so that the wrestling match is a draw. It is an equal contest. Neither one can prevail over the other. And it comes break of day, and that's why the man says to Jacob, the day is breaking, let me go. Because he has not prevailed against Jacob. God accommodates himself to Jacob's level of strength. The proof of this is the hip. Anyone who can just touch the socket and dislocate somebody's hip is not someone who is subject to Jacob's strength. This is not someone who's at Jacob's mercy in the wrestling match. At any point, the man could have done this, but he chooses the break of day once and only when Jacob has prevailed. In what way? By not giving up. This is the prevailing. Jacob perseveres. He lasts. And it is at this point, God forces Jacob to wrestle all night long to prevail. The hip, of course, is a wrestler's pivot. It is essential for wrestling to have leverage. This is true in other sports also, whether it's, it's the, the need of working your hips correctly to bat or to throw a football A wrestler needs his hips, his hips and his shoulders. Those are the key points of pivot for a wrestler. So 
by throwing Jacob's hip out of socket, this man undoes Jacob's ability to wrestle. He incapacitates him to continue the bout. And yet Jacob continues to do what? Just cling, just hang on. Jacob continues to hang on. It's all he can do. He just simply clings. He can't position his body. He can't gain any leverage, but he will not give up. Jacob prevails by just hanging on and not letting go. So that is how the Lord does not prevail over Jacob. He chooses not to. He chooses to continue to press Jacob and push him without overcoming him just long enough to make Jacob hang on and last. The answer to the second question, the question why, is this. To sever Jacob once and for all from any self-sufficiency. There's been process in Jacob's life. We've seen the change. We've seen the transformation. But there's still something that must be worked out. There is one final preparation before he meets Esau face to face. Before he takes possession of the land that God has promised to him and his children. Jacob can no longer rely upon his strength, his vigor, his cunning He cannot overcome this opponent, but he simply clings and begs for a blessing. God reduces Jacob to clinging. Look again at verse 27. What is your name? What is your name? This is not data. The man is not ignorant of who Jacob is. He knows who Jacob is. He knows his name. He's not after Jacob's name. But now that Jacob has clung, now that Jacob has persevered, he wants Jacob to confront his own identity. He wants Jacob to come to grips with his own lack of character. Because how is Jacob forced to answer when this man says, what is your name? Which by by which he really means, who are you really? What is the sum of your identity? Who are you? He is calling Jacob out. He's forcing Jacob to acknowledge, confront his own character because Jacob's only answer is what? Jacob. I am Jacob. I am a deceiver. I am a heel grabber. I'm a schemer. That's who I am. That's the sum total of my identity. While clinging helplessly to the one who has disabled him, after grappling all night, Jacob is forced to confront his own moral deficiency before God. If you want to know who I am, the only identity I have is I'm a deceiver. I'm a schemer. And is at this point, and finally and only at this point, that God changes his name. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, which means strives with God. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. 
Now, during this work of transformation, God now marks Jacob's life. Is that not what it means to come to God, to come to Christ in humility and brokenness? And if God says, and when he says, what is your name? Who are you? The only answer we can give is, I'm a nobody. I'm a deceiver. I'm an adulterer. I'm a thief. That's the only answer. And if we do not give that answer, when God says, who are you? Then we are self-deceived. We are blind to our heart's real condition without God. Because every one of us has to answer, I am I am an arguer, I am a fighter, I am an anger monger, I'm a thief, I'm an adulterer. And it is only in that confession and in God's gracious response you will no longer be that, right? You will no longer be that. For Jacob, it involved a change of name. You will not be Jacob anymore. You will not be deceiver. You will be Israel, one who has striven with God and prevailed. He had striven with Esau and prevailed. He had striven with Isaac in a game of wits, and he had prevailed. He had striven with Laban, and he had prevailed, all by scheming. But now he has striven with God and prevailed. How? By God's grace. You might say that by God's grace, he prevailed with God. Jacob has been once for all severed from his own self-sufficiency. Verse 29, Jacob responds with a plea. Please tell me your name. He pleads because this man is not obligated to identify himself. Jacob knows that. But the man's reply, why is it that you ask my name? This is a rhetorical question. What he is saying by asking that question is, don't you know my name? You know my name. You know who I am. And then he blesses him. And we're not even given the contents of the blessing. I think it's a reiterate, it's a repeat of the same blessings. But he confirms it. And Jacob realizes it. He knows it is God. That's why. Verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered face-to-face with God, and I have lived to tell about it. And here we go. What has Jacob been so concerned about in verse 20? Esau's face. His own face. Maybe I can appease his face. Maybe we can meet face-to-face. Maybe he will accept my face, lift my face and accept me. Now there is a different face that matters more. Because he has been face to face with God and he has been given the confidence to face Esau. God is not trying to fill us with a sense of ourselves. God is severing us from self-sufficiency. 
that we might not look to the face of others, nor only to, or even to our own face, but only to his face. In verse 31 is a beautiful picture, isn't it? The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. What do you think that limp meant to Jacob? He would limp the rest of his life. In fact, we get a, this picture of Jacob in his last days in Genesis chapter 49 that he has to, when he stands, he has to lean upon a staff. He can't stand without the staff. What do you think that limp meant to Jacob? It would always remind him of all of his insufficiencies. No matter how clever he was, no matter how successful he was, that limp would always remind him of how insufficient he was without God and remind him of all of God's sufficiencies in his life. That limp is a reminder, even to us, that God's grace will prevail. Never our own self-sufficiency. The nation of Israel would even memorialize the truth, according to verse 32, and not eat certain sinew or part of the, the meat because of what God did with Jacob here. But God's grace severs us from our self-sufficiency. Lastly, God's grace enables us to be faithful. God's grace enables us to be faithful. Chapter 33, verse one. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He, went, he himself went on before them. So Jacob places himself in front now, not behind, but in front. Bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Now Esau is referring to the gifts and the servants who had come wave after wave. That's what he's referring to, all this company. And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. In other words, seeing Esau's face and not his sword is recognizing God's deliverance that God has delivered him, that God has worked in Esau's heart and life and and perspective in such a way that he would respond uh, peacefully to Jacob's gifts and approach. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, verse 11, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. 
But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. I say that God's grace enables us to be faithful because Jacob's reunion with Esau actually reveals two obstacles to continuing in God's blessing. One would be conflict with Esau. And as we've noted, God has already worked through Jacob's humility and Jacob's wisdom to establish reconciliation and peace between them. You see that Esau has plenty. Now, if you'll remember, when, when Jacob stole the blessing, Isaac responded to Esau by saying, you're just going to get, it was kind of almost an anti-blessing of what Esau was going to get, but he has plenty, as though to say that even scraps of blessing from the covenant table are more than sufficient. And Jacob's gifts and humility have declared his good intentions and his acknowledgement of wrongdoing, and Esau has accepted them. But the other obstacle is entanglement with Esau. Because though Esau here is presented as forgiving and fair-minded, and I believe his, his offer to not accept Jacob's gifts is genuine. I think Esau is saying, I've got enough. You keep them. We want peace, but you don't have to do this. I think Esau is being genuine in that. Even though he's presented this way, he is still incompatible with the people of promise. He is incompatible with God's covenant and covenant people. He has no part in the covenant at this time. And so Jacob tactfully disentangles himself from Esau. Esau says initially, let us travel together. Jacob says, no, 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 you've got kind of a militia. You guys are going to want to ride. You know what? Let me just go at a slower pace. You go on and ride ahead. I'll catch up with you. Esau says, well, at least let me leave some of my men with you. Maybe as a protection what have you, maybe to keep my eye on you. It's hard to know exactly what Jacob is suspicious of or what he's concerned about or why Esau wants to do this, if he has ulterior motives or not. The text doesn't say any of that. But again, Esau makes this offer and Jacob tactfully repels it. Says, no thanks, what? There's no need to do that. You go on, we'll come at a slower pace and we'll catch up with you. Though God has brought about peace and reconciliation, Esau is still an obstacle. He is still rejected. He has no vision for or appetite for God's promises. Esau is not a person of faith. He has married, intermarried with Canaanite and Ishmaelite women. He will father a nation who does not believe or follow God or love God's people, the the descendants of their brothers, their uncles, Jacob's and his descendants, they will not love them. They will war against them and deceive them and, and act treacherously toward them as history goes on. 
And notice how Jacob and Esau refer to their wealth and possessions. Esau says, I have enough. Three different times Jacob refers to God's blessing, what God has given me, what God has blessed me with. Three different times. The next episode in the book of Genesis, which we're not going to get into, shows this same tension between becoming entangled with a people, a native people in the land of Canaan, the Shechemites, and the reality of offending those people and causing conflict. And Jacob has to navigate it again. But here God's grace enables Jacob to be faithful. It grants him wisdom to see that, yes, we want peace in the land and not conflict, but we're not going to entangle ourselves. They're not, you're not going to piggyback onto the promise in that way. God's grace enables him to do that. So we have seen Jacob transformed then. He's been transformed from a deceiver, a schemer, someone who acts independently of God, to someone who is humble, to someone who cares, to someone who recognizes wrong in his own life, his own lack of deserving of God's blessing, to someone who makes peace, who depends on God, and who understands the importance of the promise, the covenant, and to remain faithful to God. And really, God's grace is behind all of these scenes, all of these messages. God's grace is behind his surprising purposes in choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau. God's grace is behind that. God's grace is behind his transforming present as he encounters Jacob on the road out of the promised land and promises to be with him. God's grace is behind the refining discipline as Jacob has to go through being deceived and losing and working hard. And it is God's grace behind his unfailing deliverance as he brings Jacob back out of Exile and into the promised land. And now we see God's grace prevail ultimately in Jacob's life. So we see Jacob emerge from all of this as someone who loves God and is faithful to him and humble of heart. And it is is God's grace that is behind it all in your life and my life too. That his purposes are carried out, that we know his presence in our lives, that we can endure his refining discipline, because we know that God is in his grace making us holy. And we know that it is his grace that never fails to deliver us and ultimately prevails in our lives to change us. That we too emerge day by day as people who are covenanted with God, who are enabled by his grace in our lives to love him and to know him and to walk with him.